So we're in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And, and it's in what we refer to as Paul the Apostle's second missionary journey. As we see here in this first slide, uh, Paul begun his trip in Antioch in Syria. And he, he started out traveling with a man named Silas. Silas was sort of a, a replacement for Barnabas because Paul and Barnabas had a falling out. And so he and Silas take off and they are traveling along. And after a while, Timothy, uh, they came across Timothy at a place called Lystra. Timothy joined up, met with them on, on their trip. And uh, then as they traveled westward again, they got to the seaport of Troas. And that's where they picked up, met and, and got together with a guy by the name of Luke, a doctor. And a guy that wrote a great deal of the, the literature that we see here and influenced a lot of the, the literature. I could go into a whole thing on that. Uh, but Luke, wonderful, godly man. He and Paul forged a friendship that would last until Paul was executed years later at Rome. So as we see on the second slide, they, they had covered a lot of ground when Paul at Troas, he received a vision to come over to Macedonia and to preach the gospel now in Europe. They had been ministering in Asia all this time up until then. So now there's four of them. There's Paul, Silas, Luke, and Timothy, and they initially traveled to Philippi, uh, and a whole bunch of stuff went on there. Again, don't have time to go into it. It's in the book of Acts chapter 16 and then 17, uh, but they end up leaving Luke and Philippi and traveling westward again, and they go to a town or a city. It was actually a big city, a couple hundred thousand people, uh, called Thessalonica. Now, not long after they arrived there, we're told that they spent three Sabbaths there, and we don't know, they could have spent a couple of months, but at least three Sabbaths are what are recorded for us. They had to leave town in a hurry. Trouble came up, the Jews got sideways with them and, and stirred up a whole thing, and, and so they ended up leaving town. They went to a nearby city called Berea, and the same thing happened there. So Paul, at that point, he leaves Timothy and Silas to attend to the, to the church at Thessalonica to nurture them and to minister to them. As he now heads south, uh, he goes to Athens and then on to Corinth. Now, soon enough, Timothy and Silas had rejoined Paul, evidently brought a report that the infant church at Thessalonica had been thriving, yes. But there also were some problems that needed to be addressed. So in this third slide here, we see that because Paul had been unable to return to Thessalonica, upon hearing the report from Timothy and Silas, he opted to write a letter back to that church, uh, and it would be the first inspired writing that the Apostle Paul would make. Now, some people say, well, maybe it was Galatians was the first one. I think that more evidence weighs in on the side of First Thessalonians as being the first time that he put a, a quill to the paper, so to speak, and wrote a letter. And and, and we'll talk about that as we go along, how God used that, the adversity that he endured, uh, to do some amazing things. So last week, in the first 12 verses of chapter 2, we looked at some really amazing insights with Paul the pastor. Uh, now, this guy, he wore a lot of hats. <laughs> he, you know, he, he was an apostle in one of the key positions uh, of authority in the early church. He was a prophet, proclaimed the word of God. He was a pastor teacher. He was an evangelist. He was a missionary. And, and he was gifted in working miracles and signs and wonders. I mean, this guy, he, he was a, a, an amazing, amazing man. Here in this section in First Thessalonians, we're looking at Paul the pastor. 
We're looking at Paul the shepherd, a deep concern for the people in that church because of the things that were going on. We're also reminded last week that wherever Paul went preaching the gospel and wherever he established a church, false teachers were soon to follow. They were right on his heels, usually every time, especially when he left the city, they would come in and they begin to try to, and what their thing was is they would, uh, attempting to discredit the message they would levy false accusations and lies about the messenger. And so, and folks, that is just a common ploy of the enemy today. Uh, don't even get me started on the political scene in America because uh, so often people, are, they, they project the very same attributes that they have onto another and stirring up trouble. That's what was happening there. Uh, we He addressed them last week uh, and talked about the reasons that uh, why he was writing to them. He was saying, look, I wasn't a deceiver. I didn't come to you as a man pleaser. We talked about that. He came to please God and serve man, not to serve man or not to please men uh, and think he somehow was serving God. We can't get that backwards. He wasn't greedy. He didn't come and exploit his position of authority for personal gain. He wasn't, that wasn't how he operated. He operated with great integrity. And now those were the things that they were accusing him of. And again, in fact, it was the false teachers who did all of those things. Bottom line, Paul was driven by two things. First, he was driven by the love that he had for the Lord Jesus. And second, he was driven by the love that he had for people. And he earnestly desired to see people step from darkness to light from death to life, and, and to see them embrace Jesus as Messiah, to see them come into the kingdom of God. That was his whole mission. And so they're, they're saying all these you know terrible things about him. And so he's writing back and he's saying to the Thessalonians, look, that's not the case. That wasn't the case. We looked at that last week. We also need to appreciate that, that from Paul, that, that he boldly proclaimed the gospel uh, and, and he didn't compromise. He didn't water it down. He didn't bring his own ideas or different, you know, he'd come up with, you know, these weird gimmicks or any of that. He stuck with the message. And it was the message that he'd received directly from Jesus himself. When in the book of Galatians, where he defends his apostleship there, he talks about, I was taught by Jesus himself. I wasn't taught by man. This isn't a revelation that came from men. This is something that came from God. We'll see that more as we progress through the text this morning as well. So he was this interesting combination of a fiery preacher and a loving pastor. (laughs) Even with the boldness that he had in proclaiming the gospel, uh, we saw that he was a compassionate and caring man at the same time. He deeply loved these new believers in Thessalonica, compared himself, remember we looked at, he compared himself to a mother with her child. Uh, that, that she treated, he treated them with affection, with nurture and love. But then he switches gears and he says, I also treated you as a father would. And, and I encouraged, I comforted you, I, I exhorted you as a father. You know, get out there and get that done, you kind of a thing. And, and he, so he was doing both in this, in his relationship with them. He said in verse 12, and we capped off last week's study with, uh, the statement that he said, speaking as a father, he said, walk worthy of God. He's saying, he's saying guys, just walk worthy. Uh, he's the one who called you into his own kingdom and glory. Wonderful passage. Uh, and where we're going to pick up this morning in verse 13. 
But before we do that, I just want to invite you, imagine with me for a moment that you're the one that's receiving this letter. Think about hearing how much Paul loved you, how, how affectionately he felt towards you, how much care and compassion and understanding he had towards you. Now, and folks, we can only imagine how this letter hit the Thessalonians as they received it. But they took it personally, and Paul intended it personally. And by extension, he, God intends it for us to be personal. As I mentioned, this isn't a group thing. This is an individual thing. And that's where God meets us. He meets us individually in, in, the, in, in, our, in our own hearts, in that relationship that we have individually, one-on-one with him. Yes, we gather, and we're encouraged, we're strengthened, we're equipped when we do this. But where your Christianity happens, when you walk out that door when you're going through the week, when you're faced with challenges, when you're tempted to get jacked up with somebody or or whatever it is. Those are those times when the Holy Spirit comes to bear in our lives and wants to direct the course of our lives. And, And he essentially beckons to us. He says, won't you let me? Won't you let me control that aspect of your life? Probing things in our lives. In verses 13 through 20, which we're going to look at this morning, Paul shifts now from defending his ministry and outlining his motives that he'd had, and he turns his focus to them. So in this section, we also gain further insight into Paul the pastor. I mean, he's still operating in, in that mode, and he's talking about his relationship with these believers in Thessalonica. Verse 13, he says, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, You welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. That is a mouth. We could spend three Sundays on that one verse, (laughs) but I'm going to pick it up a little bit because I'm going to try to finish sooner than I did last time. So in writing this letter, he's telling them that as he prayed for them, that he part of his prayer was that he thanked God continually for them that he was thankful that he had had the opportunity to meet these people, to establish this church. And I'm sure that as he wrote, he had particular individuals in mind. I mean, you know, you just can't, you can't be in a, in a meaningful relationship with a group of people without having their faces come into your mind. So what he's saying here uh, is that one of his prayers is that they not only heard the word of God, but He's thankful that they received the word of God. Because folks, it's one thing to hear, it's another thing to receive God's word. Uh, Paul even goes further than that. Here in verse 13, he says uh, that you welcomed the word of God. So they heard, they received, and they welcomed God's word to them. Now the Greek word for welcome is an interesting word. It means to receive something with approval. It's the same word that's used when you receive a guest. So the idea here is it's the difference between hearing a knock on the front door and, you know, you get it, you hear a knock, you're not expecting anybody, you open it up like a little bit and you recognize, hey, that's somebody I really care about. That's, you know, a family member, a friend or whatever. And you throw that door open. You're receiving them. You're welcoming them in that sense. So that response is vastly different than when you open the door to a stranger or to someone who's trying to sell you something, or to somebody who's nicely dressed, has a little plastic nameplate. Uh, <laughs> all of that. It, it's different. What he's saying is, this is personal. 
And, and, and folks, it's personal, as I mentioned. He goes on to say in verse 13, you welcomed it, not as the word of man, but as it is in truth, the word of God, is the, the, the God's spirit working in Paul. It's what they're acknowledging. This isn't just Paul here. So when he's speaking, they understood this, this is not merely the words of a man. They're seeing beyond that. They're seeing that this is God's word being expressed through this man. He also stated that this word is effective in those who believe. So what does it mean uh, when, what does he mean by that? And I, I want to take a moment, look at what happens when people don't unite the word of God with faith. If you hear the word, but you don't receive it. If you hear the word and you don't welcome it. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 16, and we're going to read right through uh, chapter 4, verse 2, the writer, I'm not saying it's Paul, (laughs) probably is. Anyway, the writer is drawing a parallel uh, between the children of Israel's rebellion when they came out of Egypt before they got into the promised land. uh, They're in the wilderness. He's drawing a parallel between that and what happens in the human heart. I love the fact that it's like God paints with a big brush in the Old Testament, and he does this detailed work in the New. It's just amazing how these big images come to bear in our lives. And the writer is doing just that. He's saying, look at this big deal with Israel. Now look at your heart. And I want to encourage us. Let's look at this big deal, and let's look at our own hearts. So he says in Hebrews 3.16, he says, For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And with whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Therefore, since the promise remains of entering his rest, this is chapter 4, verse 1, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. Listen to this. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard. That's exactly what Paul's getting at here. So the children of Israel, they'd gotten to the borders of the promised land, Canaan, uh, and God had told them, go in. He said, I've already given you the land. It's yours. You need to understand, yeah, and they're, they're the guys, the giants and all, they came back with a bad report. They believed their bad report rather than believing God, that he said, you go in, you step out in faith, I'll give you the victory. Now, folks, I want you to understand something. There are more than 3,000 promises here in this word of God that we have. And, and every one of them is activated by faith. Every one of them, he says, you step out in faith, I'll give you the victory. He's because the just shall live by faith. The book of Romans opens and closes with that statement. The just shall live by faith. And so if you hear God's word and you don't unite it with faith, it does no good. When I did jail ministry, I would talk to these guys that they knew God's word backwards and forwards and inside out and upside down and everything. I mean, they could recite it verbatim. And I knew guys that could do that, that had no clue of a relationship with Jesus, that had no clue of what it was to have a personal one-on-one relationship. They had no clue of what it was to have their sins cleansed and to have this beautiful relationship through the agency of the Holy Spirit with God. So folks, it's not about just hearing. It's about hearing, receiving, and welcoming God's word in our hearts. So essentially with Israel, the land was theirs. 
and the point that he makes here is all they had to do was by faith to just simply step over that border and go in and possess that which God had already given them. But they balked. As a result of their failure to trust God, the nation would not enter that rest that he had for them for 40 years. Makes my heart sad when I see believers get right up to the edge of something where God is prodding them forward and to, to back off because they just don't quite trust that God's got this. And folks, I don't know what you're dealing with, but again, the just shall live by faith. We are constantly being challenged to step out in faith, understanding that I put my foot out there and it's like, I don't know where it's going to set down, but I've got to trust that God does. And so as I step, he empowers. That's the point. So by contrast here, like I said, the word they heard didn't profit them because it wasn't mixed with faith in those who heard. And now so by contrast, the Thessalonians had believed and they had trusted the things that Paul had spoken as the words of God. They realized this is not Paul. This is not man's opinion about God as he spoke, as he shared, as he wrote. This is the truth of God spoken through this man that God himself had sent to them and by extension to us. That's why we place such a high value on the word of God in our, in our church and in our lives. It's everything to understand that this is God's speech to us. Inspired, inerrant word of God. It is God's word to man. Verses 14 through 16, we'll look at those together. He says, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us, and they do not please God, and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the, to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. That is a strong, strong statement. So what Paul's telling them here is he's, he, he's thankful that not only did they receive his words as the word of God, but that when they were persecuted, they stayed faithful to God, that there's fruit. There, folks, the, the principle is you will always, and I underscore always, always, always act on what you believe. You know, if I told you that there's a you know, the crack in the ceiling, the building's about to collapse, you ain't going to be sitting here. If you believe it, <laughs> of course it's not. But I mean, you understand what I mean? You will always act on what you believe. That's just, that is just, a, that is an immutable principle. And so as you take the word of God and you believe it, as you mix it with faith, you will act on it. It will influence the way you live your life. And as you understand more of God's word, it will profoundly influence the way you live your life because your worldview shifts from being that of this worldly kingdom, the kingdom of man, to the kingdom of God, because that's what's revealed here. So he's saying, you, the Jews persecuted the Jews. The Jews in Judea, the, the religious Jews, persecuted the early, the, and the early Christians, they were Jews that converted to Christianity. And he's saying that they were persecuted. And now what's happening in the Gentile world is the same thing. The Gentiles are persecuting you for your faith, for your welcoming the word of God into your life, into your heart. And so now you're experiencing what they did. And you've been just as faithful as they have. 
So he goes on here, and, he says, and essentially he says, look, the crowning sin of the religious leaders in Jesus' day uh, was the fact that they killed the Lord Jesus. They had a part in his crucifixion. Not only did they do that uh, to Jesus, but they had the Jews had a long history of killing their own prophets. Uh, I mean, it's, it's the, the Old Testament is full of examples. The prophets were the one who had been faithful to come and to speak to them on behalf of God. So their persecution hadn't stopped with the Old Testament, nor with Christ, but it moved right into the present day in the lives of the Christians in Judea, as well as the lives of the Christians in Thessalonica. And that's the parallel that Paul's bringing. He's saying, look, you're doing well. This is not new. Nothing is, is happening that, that, is, that is new to me. It might be new to you, but you're, you're being faithful to the word as it's gone out in the same way as those people 20-some years before in Judea and up until the present day were handling the persecution that came their way. Folks, the Bible declares all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will, shall, it doesn't say they might, suffer persecution. And I don't know, I, I'm, I am not going to even try to take a guess at where our nation, where this world is going, but I'll tell you what, it seems to be, it's, it's like if you spin a top, it'll go along for a long time and pretty soon it just starts to wobble and pretty soon it's wobbling more and more and we're watching that happen with our world. I don't know at what point that thing tips over, but you got to understand that God has this. Draw great comfort from the fact that we have hope in Jesus Christ. We don't have hope in this world. And if you do, you need to check where you're placing your hope, truly. I say that as a brother to encourage you, not to, to rebuke you somehow, but if you have hope in this life, it is misplaced because our, whole, our only hope is in Jesus Christ and the fact that he is coming soon. We'll get to that. I'm going to get ahead of myself. So, as Paul travels from city to city, he preaches the gospel to anybody who would listen. He tells Gentiles and Jews they can be saved the same way. He's not doing this to please God. He says, look, they're persecuting you. In doing that, they're not pleasing God. They're contrary to all men. Not only does it not please God, it doesn't help man. And God is all about helping man. And so he's saying, look, this is inconsistent with the character and nature of God. And so they think that they're doing this great service to God. And Jesus warned that that would happen, that men will come and they will persecute you and think that they are doing it for God. And it's exactly what's happening with these people in the Gentile world and in the Jewish world. They thought that they were doing something to appease God, and they weren't. So as he goes along, again, from city to city, he preaches the gospel. He tells everybody that, well, well, listen, that Gentiles and Jews are now saved in the same way. And that was a huge stumbling block for the Jews. They hated it. You mean, I've kept the law of Moses from the time I was a little boy or a little girl up until now, and you're saying all of that is of no value in having a relationship with God? Are you serious? It's on the basis of grace? You mean the Gentiles have equal standing as me, a covenant Jew? Are you serious? I mean, they got really upset about it. They did not like God's method of salvation, and they did not like the one that he raised up to deliver it. They, they could not have. The, the, the gospel was a stumbling block. The person of Christ was a stumbling block. They, and that was the cause of the persecution that came. They could not handle the fact that God would actually save these, these, these horrible, wretched Gentiles. 
the thought that they would be given equal status before God uh, was just something that it was hard for them to comprehend. So what's interesting about this, they're unwilling to receive the gospel themselves. That's true. But then they get in the way of the gospel going to other people. They, well, we don't want it. We don't want you to have it either. It, it, was, it doesn't make a lot of sense, except for when you look at it as the powers of darkness working hard, working overtime to prevent the word of God from going out for people to be able to have the opportunity to respond. So he says, these guys, they're not pleasing God at all. They're contrary. They, they resist men and women coming to know the Lord. They forbid them to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved. And, and I'm telling you, folks, any religious leader, I don't care who it is, that gets in the way of people hearing God's words and that would hold them back from putting their faith in Christ. Again, I don't care who or what it is or if it's some religious system that's been around for hundreds of years, whatever the case may be, with regard to that kind of a, a teacher or group, God's wrath is going to come upon them, period. End of story. They are storing up wrath for themselves. He takes it all very, very seriously. You know, it's one thing to rip people off for money. It's another thing to rip people off in other ways. But I'll tell you, the worst thing that that a person could do is is to to rip another human being off uh, spiritually uh, and to deceive them or to, to prevent them somehow from coming to an understanding of God and receiving everlasting life. I'll tell you what, the stakes are high and people that work against it, uh, what Paul is saying here is that God doesn't like it. He knows how to judge it and he will judge, period. Verse 17, he says, but we brethren having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. So I'll go on to verse 18. He says, therefore we want to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. So once again, we see the heart of a pastor in Paul's love for these people. While he's not able to be with them in person, he's letting them know that they're on his heart and on his mind. I mean, he's being very personal, intimate with these people. And I previously mentioned too, that a big part of the reason that Paul wrote this letter was because he was hindered, as we see here in verse 18, he was hindered from coming to the Thessalonians in person. I'll tell you, we get a bit of a window into the world of spiritual warfare here. Uh, we know that if we, by reading the, the text in the book of Acts that, that chronicles these things, also here in 1 Thessalonians, that evil men as well as difficult circumstances were what surrounded Paul's being unable to return to them in person. In verse 18, he attributes all of that to Satan hindering them. Folks, we have a real adversary who operates from the unseen realm into the physical realm. And you need to understand that. Uh, he's not some guy with a goatee, red suit, a pitchfork, <laughs> pointy horns. The Bible tells us, as a matter of fact, he comes as an angel of light. He's great at the art. He is subtle, skilled with regard to deception. So on the other, I wanted to, I think there's a place for balance here. I, I don't think it's healthy to have a mindset that sees the devil in every corner I mean, I've dealt with people like that that are so hypersensitive that it's like, ah, oh, it's like, no, I think we need to have a healthy understanding that, yes, he is going about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Uh, And we need to acknowledge that. 
Uh, Billy Sunday, he was a, a, a 19th century evangelist, very similar on par with Billy Graham in the 20th century. Uh, he said, I treat Satan like a fly in the room. And he said, when he lands, I swat him. <laughs> Otherwise, I just don't pay him a lot of attention. And I think that's a great attitude to have. Interesting. God is known also for taking that which was meant for evil and working it for good. I love Genesis 50. There's Joseph with his brothers there. And there's the dad told you to tell you not to kill us before he died. And this whole thing, it's, just, it's hilarious when I read it. And, and Joseph said, you know what? You meant it for evil against me, but God worked it for good. And that's what God does. <laughs> In this case, Satan's hindrances were what started Paul writing letters to different churches. <laughs> and, I, I, and I have to think that when Satan saw the great work that God was doing through those letters, my guess is that he probably regretted ever sending, ever hindering Paul at all. It reminds me of... Um, a number of years ago, a friend of mine, Leo, uh, had a big church in San Diego. It was right on Interstate 8, and he knew I was a graphic designer, and so he asked me if I would design a bunch of billboards and bus shelter ads for their church. He called it our annual Christmas card, and he did. It's called The 100 Showing. Don't need to go in the ad lingo on that. But he was saturating the market with these bus shelter ads. And everyone, and it was, it was essentially the gospel and you sit on a bus shelter and you, you know, read this thing and it had the name of his church there. And it was great. Until one Saturday morning, the county went and sent trucks out and they rounded up every single one of those bus shelter ads and said, and, and the question said, hey, we paid you guys a lot of money to put these out. What's going on to the company that had the ads? And they said, well, the county pulled them and they, they cited separation of church and state. You're violating the Constitution. So Leo did not get jacked up, but he did not get, you know, he just like, okay, Lord, you know, what are you doing in this? So they called a meeting with the county supervisors in San Diego, and they called this meeting, and he shows up, and he's just there to try to make peace. And I mean, like I said, he was not aggressive in any way. He shows up at this meeting, and he walks in, and there in the room is Peter Jennings from ABC News. And they've got the cameras rolling, and they're filming this whole thing. And Leo sits up there politely saying, we're just wanting to share our faith with our community, and we don't see that that's a violation, blah, blah, blah. So he starts out with the intention of reaching the county. They reached, I think that the ratings that, <laughs> that week or whatever that was, it was like 9 million people. <laughs> Satan hindered Paul. Paul wrote letters. Millions upon millions upon millions of people have benefited from that hindrance. So folks, when you're going through tough stuff and you see the enemy hard at work in your life, look up. Understand he will take what was meant for evil and he will work it somehow for good. One of my prayers, I don't know how God's doing it. I don't know what he's going to accomplish in that. But one of my prayers is, Lord, I pray that somehow, some way, you would take this situation and work it for good. Work it for your glory. Shine the light on you and off of that guy, because I see that he's working overtime. But I also trust that you are in control and you're going to work it for good. I love that story about Leo. And, and he just came out of that meeting going, I could never, I could never have imagined the outcome. In verse 19, Paul concludes uh, the section here uh, with an eye toward heaven. Interesting, he asks a rhetorical question, and then he immediately answers it. In verse 19, he says, what is our, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? 
Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? So once again, we see Paul anticipating the coming of Christ. We saw it at the end of chapter one, where he talks about believers escaping the wrath to come. He spins it a little bit differently here. He ends chapter two with embracing the presence of the Lord Jesus at his coming. So he looked at leading people to Christ as his crown of rejoicing. That was what he was looking for. You know, it, it's like, I can't, I, I live, I want so much to hear when I show up in heaven and I, and I know it'll only be by his grace. Well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. I, and I, I'm telling you folks, that's a lofty goal, but it's one that's, that I pray that we get to experience. And, and here he's saying, look, my crown of rejoicing, my crown is you guys when he's writing to the Thessalonians. He looked at leading these people as his crown. So his crown was his converts. Now the word crown here, it literally translates wreath. And it was the victor's wreath, which was given in the first century Olympics. They they had Olympic games and they they had the judgment seat. It was called the Bema seat. In the New Testament, that is used allegorically for the judgment seat of Christ. He's saying, when I get there, you guys are the reason that I, I pray that I receive that crown from Jesus. And we know that we know that it's his righteousness that causes us to have any merit to receive that crown to begin with. And that's where we'll take it and throw it at the feet of Jesus anyway. So it's a wonderful picture here of heaven. And he's saying, look, uh, this word that I've given you is producing fruit. This word of God that you are grabbing a hold of is producing fruit in your life. And now I look forward to seeing you in heaven together. Verse 20, he says, for you are our glory and joy. So the Thessalonian converts were their glory and joy. So he and Timothy and Silas, they had been investing in the lives of these people, the ones that they served, and their reward was spiritual sons and daughters uh, who would worship the Lamb of God with them for eternity. So as we wrap up this morning, I want to look at a couple of things. Three, (laughs) and I'll try not to take too long. The first is this. What is truth? Talking about the word of God this morning. So more than 20 years before Paul penned this letter, probably about a quarter of a century before, the Lord Jesus had been arrested and was now standing trial before Pilate. And Pilate's asking him some probing questions. Just going to break into the middle of his trial here, actually towards the end of it. In John 18, uh, verse 37, we read, Pilate therefore said to him, are you a king then? And Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, listen to this, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate therefore said to him, what is truth? And when he had heard this, he went out again to the Jews, and he said to them, I find no fault in him at all. Oh, I would love to get into the prophetic significance of that because here is the spotless lamb of God being declared spotless, being declared faultless. But another time. Oh, I'm, I'm tempted. <laughs> A few hours before the events that we see when he's on trial before Pilate, somewhere between the upper room of Mount Zion and the Garden of Gethsemane, just across the Kidron Ravine at the base of the Mount of Olives, somewhere in there, Jesus prays. And it's in John chapter 17, we call it the great high priestly prayer of Christ. Now, people talk about like Matthew 5, the Lord's prayer, you know, our Father who art in heaven, how would be, all of that. That's the disciples' prayer. 
All right, yeah, we call it the Lord's Prayer, and I'm, I don't have a beef about it, but truly the Lord's Prayer is in John 17. That's where he prays, and he prays for you and I. I mean, he prays down through the ages. Not going to get to that part, but I, wanna do, I do want to get to a, a part here. Where in John 17, let's see. Yeah, breaking in the middle of this high priestly prayer. In 1717, we read, Jesus says, sanctify or cleanse them by your truth. And then he goes on to say, your word is truth. Now, notice that he doesn't say your word contains truth. (laughs) That's not what he said. He's very clear that God's word is our singular source for ultimate truth. Folks, you have, I, I hope that you hold high the scriptures because they are our source for ultimate truth. And that's why we go, that's what we, how we roll here at Calvary. We do that because we want to know truth. I was talking to my son who's in leadership at a Calvary Chapel in, in California, Northern California, not long ago. And he said, Dad, there's new people showing up every week at our church. And I said, I know, we're having the same thing. <laughs> And, and he's, I said, what do you think is going, driving that? And he said, I think people are just sick and tired of not hearing any truth. I think people are sick and tired of just getting some religious glop, or they're sick and tired of the lies that the government's telling us. They're sick and tired of this whole narrative thing, the whole, and I, I could go on. And we had a great conversation. And he said, we just see people showing up because they want the word of God. And I said, amen. I talked to him the other day. He said, it's still going. He said, we went to two services and and they're a little ahead of us. He said, we went to two services and I don't know what we're going to do with all these people, dad. I said, that's great. Praise the Lord. Good problems to have. And he said, I know. Praise the Lord. So, you know, we're excited about what God's doing here because we are giving people truth. Don't take my word for it. Study this book yourself. Truly, it's exciting to do. That's free. That was nowhere in my notes. So... So the question becomes, how is that truth communicated to you and I? In John 16, backing up a chapter from where we were, Jesus is describing the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And he says, however, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. Will somebody get that? (laughs) For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. So here's the process. It is the Spirit of God taking the Word of God and driving it into the hearts of the people of God. That's why we do what we do. Understanding that, the question then becomes, do you believe God's Word? And folks, the options are simple. You either believe it or you don't. Let's be honest. Do you believe what's put forth here? Now, you don't need to be afraid of it. Uh, This is God's story while there are dire consequences connected to choosing to reject Christ and to stay in rebellion towards God, this book, Genesis to Revelation, cover to cover, it is a love story. And it's one that God wrote to reach out to that creation, that that part of his creation that was made in his image to restore us from the fall, the effects of the fall. You see the first couple of verses in, or a few chapters in Genesis where man is created, God says it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's not good that he's alone, and then everything goes haywire. From that point to the end of the book of Revelation is God's work, God's story of working to redeem man, to pull him back into relationship, into fellowship with him. 
I've asked many, many times over the years, I'll ask somebody, well, what were we created for? And they'll say, well, to serve God. And I'll say, no, 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 no. We're created for fellowship with God. Out of that fellowship comes fruitful service for sure. But it's fellowship with God. It's a love story. God's plan to redeem people like you and me who are willing to turn from our rebellious ways and accept his love. Second thing, throw that door open. You know, Paul earnestly believed and he taught others that God had spoken to man. He believed in a voice that speaks to humanity with the authority of eternity and speaks above human opinion, as we've looked at. In Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, Peter agrees with what we've been looking at here in First Thess. Peter says, for, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture becomes a matter of someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. That's what Paul's saying here. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So what does that mean in practical terms for you and I? Second Timothy uh, chapter 3. Timothy, or Paul writing to Timothy, uh, his protege, he, he says, all Scripture... All scripture, by the way, underscore, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped and for every good work. Folks, that's the effect that the word of God has in our lives. It's not about being book smart. You know, I pray, Lord, don't let this, and almost any time that I teach, part of it is, Lord, I pray that don't let this be a book report. Let this be something that's empowered and energized by your Holy Spirit because we are going to teach your word. And as people hear that, I pray that by your spirit that you anoint not just the speaking, but the hearing as well, because that's where we grow. That's where we gain understanding. That's where we gain traction in the kingdom. It's where we come to a deeper level of commitment and a deeper understanding of the God that we serve. This is so important. It is so vital to a healthy church. And I praise God that we've got one. The word, uh, now, also, it, it, notice in verse 16, he says, all scripture, not some. And folks, there are people out there that will try to cherry pick passages. Very unhealthy. Not good. <laughs> Don't get to do that. It, it cherry pick uh, some passages and ignore the rest. Ignore the hard stuff. And we're going to go through the hard stuff and the easy stuff and everything in between here because it's God's word. When he talks about inspiration of God, it's the Greek word theonustos, and the word it comes. The word pneumatic means air, and what he's talking about, and what it means is, and the word theo is God. He's saying that this word, God's word, is God breathed. It's inspired. It's not the words of men. It's not somebody's opinion. It's God's divinely inspired word. The Thessalonians had heard it. They had a choice. And the choice was simple: reject or receive. In choosing by faith to receive, they were acknowledging God's authority in their lives. What about you? You're here this morning. You're hearing the word of God. And folks, it's not about my opinions or funny stories. I love, you know, I like to say that, you know, a moment of sanctified laughter beats an hour of profound slumber. And that's true. But it's not about that. It's about the effect that God's word has on our lives as we take it in. And as we ask the Lord, Lord, reveal yourself in ways to me that uh, I, 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 I'm hungry for you. That's why we pray, Lord, give us ears to hear, spiritual ears, eyes to see, spiritual eyes, hearts that understand. That's where the rubber meets the road, gang. It's, it's where it's at. That's how we grow. That's how we come into a, a greater knowledge and greater understanding and a, a greater depth in our walk, as I mentioned. 
The Bible also tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. More than that, though, it's about hearing the word, receiving the word, and choosing to throw the door to your heart open to his word as we embrace and we welcome the transforming power of the word of God into our lives. Third thing, we'll wrap up. Keep your eyes on the prize. Paul fervently desired uh, and, and he lived in the reality that one, G, one day Jesus would return for his bride. And that he, he longed for that day. It gave him an overwhelming sense of joy at the thought of leading someone to Christ. When they, just to know that they would join him in waiting for the Lord's coming. That's what he says in this final verse here in verse 20. He's saying, I, I long for that. I live for that. My life's purpose is to see you come. And I know that when we get there, that I'm going to see you. And I love it when I hear about somebody has gone to be with the Lord. I was talking to a guy last week that his father just died and he and his brother had a chance to share Christ with him before he did. And he said, Pastor John, I'm going to see my dad. And I was like, oh, thank God that, that you were there and that you were able to pour Jesus out on him before he went. That's what Paul's saying. I love this. I long for this. I want to see people's lives impacted with the gospel of Christ. Why? Because it's true. If you can look back in your own life and see the cross as a focal point in a personal way, then you have the right and the ability and the privilege of looking forward to Jesus' soon return as well. If you're not in that place this morning, I invite you, give your life to Christ. Time is short. I believe it's short. Doesn't ever tell us when he's coming back. He says the important thing is that you're ready. And if you're not ready, you can be ready with a simple prayer. Give your life to Jesus. Allow him to work in your life. Allow him to come in by his Holy Spirit and set up shop in your heart. I guarantee you on the basis of his word, which is true, that he'll do it. Let's pray. Father, as we, uh, <laughs> as we race through this passage, uh, in First Thessalonians 2, we're grateful, Lord, that your word is open to those who want to hear, who have chosen by faith to appropriate your word in our lives. We're grateful. We're grateful, Father. We're grateful for the cross. We're grateful for the resurrection. We're grateful for your soon return. We look for that with expectancy. And Father, equip us to be burdened, to reach out to those around us, perhaps in our families or in our workplace or those that we know that we would have a great burden as Paul did to see people step into the kingdom so that we could look forward to being with them when we all get there. Thinking of that place, Lord, what an awesome thing that will be, knowing that there will be no more death, there will be no more sin, that there will be no more tears. Lord, we long for that day. And in the meantime, we pray that you would use us here, that our lives would be fruitful for you and for your kingdom. We give ourselves afresh to you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.